Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. That scene, that last scene. What does it mean? I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. It's over. Go home. That final scene starts now. Hi everyone, Sophie here. Hope you're doing well and have been watching as many films as I have in the last few days. I am recording this a couple of days after the wrap of the London edition of Sundance Film Festival, which took place at Picture House Cinemas. I am feeling a bit exhausted, but it's not due to lack of energy, just that I watched eight films and eight and seven shorts in four days, so I feel like I have an overwhelming amount of emotional information in my head that I'm just trying to process this week. Anyway, for this reason, I thought it would actually be better to talk through what I saw at the festival so I can give you a better overview of what its film is about and, most importantly, give you a heads up about some films that are worth watching later this year. As you may know, Sundance is a discovery festival, so this is where thousands of filmmakers go every year to exhibit their work with the hope that it's going to get picked up by a distributor. In fact, a programmer from Sundance told us that every year they receive over 10,000 shorts and they only have nine programmers to go through them all. So to say that competition is high would be an understatement. Anyway, here are the films that I saw at Sundance Film Festival. They are an interesting mix, so hopefully there is at least one film for you in there. Feel free to grab a pen and paper or jot this down on your phone, but know that this will also be included in the episode show notes with all the info that you need. Great, so starting off with a horror title, Resurrection, this one I was really excited about. The movie's about a woman named Margaret, played by my favorite, Rebecca Hall, who is living an overly, I would say, disciplined, but also comfortable life as a single working mom. But things take a sudden turn when a man from her past makes an unexpected return. As she tries to deal with the memories of her youth and what happened, those closest to her, including her daughter and a guy who's kind of her friend but also her fuck buddy, try to help her get her life back under control while she's spiraling at the same time. The psychodrama directed by Andrew Siemens joins the ranks of other recent horror titles such as Knocking, Censor, and The Night House from 2020, which also starred Hall. There was a lot to like in Resurrection. I love how it portrayed an underlying, grabby, disturbing reality without it being on your face. In your face? On your face? I'm not sure what's the right way to say this. Um, you can almost tell it leaves its stains on Hall's character. Both Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth, uh, who plays the man from her past, are electrifyingly good as a couple inextricably bound together in prolonged mutual suffering. We see them torment each other, well, mostly Ross's character does, in ways that are both physical and psychological, but I like that it doesn't limit itself as just a genre film. It isn't perfect by any means, an aspect that I'm kind of still hung up on is its take on sadism, but the ending is quite tragic. It's also quite triumphant. It's hard, it's hard to describe without giving any spoilers away. 
but I do think it's worth seeing. Resurrection also includes what is most likely going to be my favorite monologue in the film scene this year, with Rebecca Hall delivering a performance of a lifetime in a matter of minutes. So not to be missed. Now, I wanted to cover the horror films first at Sundance, as the festival is putting more and more emphasis on the genre. So the next horror film that I saw is called Water, which was recently acquired by IFC Films. The one thing that was obvious from the get-go is that director Chloe Okuna channels the likes of Alfred Hitchcock for her throwback style feature debut. Water caught my attention because it preys on the heightened vulnerability of an isolated woman struggling to adapt to a new country, creating a dark atmospheric thriller that tackles voyeuristic paranoia. And the story is about our American protagonist, Julia, played by Maika Monroe, whom you may have seen in It Follows, who approached her life to move with her half-Romanian husband to Bucharest for his high-pressure marketing job. His demanding work hours leave Julia almost entirely on her own to adjust to a new country and culture, and it's made even harder by the language barrier. If you've ever been alone in a country, you know how long the days may feel and the nights may feel even longer. And at some point, we see Julia staring out the window where she notices a creepy face staring back. Fun times. So that mild feeling of being watched gets transformed into full-blown paranoia, which is only amplified when the news reports that a killer named Spider has been stalking and decapitating women in the area. The film throughout its course, I would say, is playing with one key question. Is someone actually following Julia or is it a byproduct of loneliness and cultural shock on her side? One of the downsides of the film, I would say, is that there are familiar hallmarks and tropes of this particular subgenre. So we have the husband supporting his wife's safety concern for like two seconds before dismissing her as paranoid. Then you have the increasingly hostile neighbors who think the American is trouble, except for one laid-back female neighbor who seems too cool to care for her life. That said, as Water dives into darker, more sinister territory, we find that Julia's battle isn't to determine why her stalker is following her, but to convince those around her to believe what's going on. It is super timely material for the director and the actress to explore as it provides a new approach towards the all-too-common themes of dismissing women's call for help. The unexpected standout for me was actually the film score and the sound design. The score, I believe, was by Nathan Halpern and I just... It was so distracting for me, but like in a very positive way. I just found that it contributed so much to the atmosphere and the tone. Overall, I would say I really enjoyed the film's vision. I just wish it was a bit more even, especially in the first half. Cool. So moving on to Hatsing, a body horror, but on the less extreme side, film from Finland. 
Okay, let me start with some questions for you here. And these were the questions that came to me after coming out of the film. Think of the typical mommy bloggers for a second. What do you think their children feel about having every aspect of their lives captured on camera, often in a way that feels designed and artificial? Cognitive dissonance isn't subtle here. If anything, that feeling must be terrifying. So Hatting focuses on a young girl that's coming to such a realization. And it leads to consequences that I would say nightmares are made of. Our protagonist, adolescent Tina, is a perfect child. She's well-behaved, she's super talented, and she's um, almost like a semi-pro gymnast. She's also painfully thin, something that was quite uncomfortable for me to watch. Seeing excessively jogging or doing sit-ups alone when most girls her age are hanging out with their friends. And the root of Tina's numerous disorders lead straight to her mother, who's a professional vlogger that keeps creating videos depicting her family's perfect everyday life that is staged to the T. To a T, not the T. Not the T. <laughs> to a T. But after putting an injured bird out of its misery, we see Tina taking home the single egg that it lays so she can take care of it. The egg, nourished on Tina's tears, grows to an unnaturally large size before hatching a grotesque bird humanoid creature from it. Yeah, I know, this is surrealism at its finest, so if surrealism is not your thing, then that film isn't for you. Tina quickly starts to feel strange maternal tenderness towards the creature, eventually naming it Ali and allowing it to hide in her bedroom. The more love she pours into Ali, the more Ali becomes human. And in return, Ali, with whom Tina has some sort of strange psychic connection, is the agent of Tina's rage, exuding violence on anyone Tina perceives as threatening. Sounds great, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, I thought so too, but I feel like the premise was more interesting than the execution, which fell a bit flat for me. Bergholm's direction isn't all that inspired, but at the same time, I can see that she's also very much locked into the screenplay. The issue that I have with this film is that our empathy is reserved only for Tina and no one else. Her father and brother are merely useless in the story and her mother is just so loathsome that is beyond belief. There is nothing remotely ambiguous or realistic about the supporting characters or their motivations. So I'm not sure if the film was entirely for me but I don't regret watching it. I was terribly moved by the young actress who played Tina and I believed it's the kind of unforced devastating performance that will strike a chord with a lot of people. Okay, so uh, to change the mood a bit, let's move on to the couple of documentaries that I saw at the festival. The first one is a new HBO documentary called 
The Princess, and yes, it's a documentary about Princess Diana. <laughs> the doc is produced by Lightbox. Their films include Man on Wire and Searching for Sugarman, two documentaries that I absolutely love. And I have to be honest, at first I was quite apprehensive to the idea of another die documentary, like what else needs to be told about that story, but I did trust the team behind it. Director Ed Perkins took a different approach than other documentaries, exploring video archives exclusively and assembling clips of found footage. So while he keeps the familiar story arc comprehensively condensed, for those who have not witnessed the events unfolding in real time, like myself, he and the film's editors tried to thread out two leading messages. The first one, the morbid curiosity targeted at celebrity, Sita Depp and her trial, and an outlier's will to push through the obstacles with as much grace as possible see the comeback of Britney Spears and the Free Britney movement. More than anything, Perkins' gaze tries to capture Diana Smith through her media legacy and how it was exploited and constructed by intrusive lenses. So if you're into that kind of metatextual social commentary, that's kind of my vibe, this documentary is for you. Ultimately, I would say The Princess is much less of a Diana biography and much more of a self-reflection on current times. Our unhealthy obsession with celebrity, our infatuation with seeing people, and especially women, collapse in front of us while making a spectacle out of the tragedies. And, of course, how these parasocial relationships we create with these figures take shape and form in magazines and, I mean, these days, TikTok and YouTube. I know the doc will be out in cinemas from Thursday, 30th of June, including a special one-night-only event across the UK and Ireland. Now, the other documentary I watched was The Lovely We Met in Virtual Reality. Um, do you guys know VR chat. <laughs> Apparently it is an online virtual reality platform where you can show up as an avatar and you can meet other people and do anything to self-express. Director Joe Hunting follows several couples who met in VR during the pandemic in this app. So you have Dust Bunny and Toaster and Dragonheart and Is Your Boy. Like the, their names are as fancy and colorful as their forms. So adapting his camera work to VR chat and, in essence, creating a new filmmaking language, Hunting reveals a caring and self-sustained alternative reality, one that aims to welcome, connect, and support everyone within its community. What's groundbreaking about this documentary is that it sets new standards for what movies can look like. Indeed, I found that we met in virtual reality, obviously was shot entirely in the VR chat app. And the contrast between the artificiality of the colorful science fiction landscapes and the loneliness actually felt by the voices behind the surreal avatars is moving, striking and liberating all at once. I 
I don't know, I suddenly found myself in a parallel world where you can choose your own gender and identity. And while it's shot in a virtual reality universe, it is edited and narrated as a film. We have one of the primary characters we, that is called Jenny. She's an American sign language teacher who runs VRChat's Helping Hands community to aid hearing, deaf and hard of hearing people learn ASL in an inclusive environment. And it was so fascinating. Jenny, who appears in this world with equally pink hair and t-shirt, has a nurturing wholeness in her that makes her a natural teacher. She herself deals with an auditory processing disorder as well as mental health issues, but she clearly finds purpose in running her VR ASL sessions throughout the week. This film serves as proof of both VR's potential to bring people closer and the possibilities it extends to future filmmakers. We Met in Virtual Reality is a true fascinating piece of work. I am not sure the documentary has been picked up by any distributors yet. I wasn't able to find anything online, but I can see that, that it's still doing the rounds in film festivals, so I'm hopeful it will find a home soon. All right, two more film suggestions for you. Here's a great comedy satire, Hung for Jesus, Save Your Soul. If this isn't the best title for a film, I don't know what is. So the film is based on a true story, but fortunately it doesn't feel like another boring biopic. The movie picks up from the aftermath of a huge mega church scandal. Trinity Childs, played by the super talented Regina Hall, is the first lady of a prominent and respected Southern Baptist megachurch and attempts to help her pastor husband, Lee Curtis Childs, played by Sterling K. Brown, rebuild their now borderline non-existent congregation. And to do that, they try to reconcile their faith with their own demons in order to make the biggest comeback that commodified religion has ever seen. In a Q&A after the film, I heard that the writer-slash-director Adama Ebo, who collaborated with her sister and producer Adane Ebo, grew up attending these kinds of churches in Atlanta, Georgia. So she not only has an eye for the absurdity of the culture, but a sense for how the community relies on these churches to help define their own identity. The film is half shot in a thought documentary style, so think The Office or Modern Family, as the two lead characters invite an actual documentary filmmaker to tell their story, to try and resurrect their brand and loyalty within the church. You can, <laughs> I think you can guess how that goes. It's an interesting choice that lends itself well to capturing the duality between public and personal lives. And then you have Brown's character and performance. There are great examples of how that works really, really well. Often breaking in front of the camera and showing genuine emotion. I know we're used to kind of seeing Brown in dramatic roles, but for those of you who remember his role in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, oh my God, <laughs> that man has incredible committee chops and the show in this film. And then, of course, you have Regina Hall, right? Who's most likely the most impressive highlight of the film. 
Her performance was easily my favorite one out of the entire festival. She's pulling the strings of Trinity wonderfully. And her performance is uh, a juggling act thanks to the film's dual forms of presentation. And Trinity and Lee Curtis, we see them self-destruct in slow motion in front of us. It's beautiful. I would say that the majority of the emotional beats that are carried by the performances are the most impactful ones rather than the ones that come from the screenplay itself. And yeah, the decision to incorporate a documentary crew within the film, while I appreciate it, it could have been more fleshed out. That said, the Ambition and energy in this debut are undeniable. The film has already been picked up by Focus Features, so expect a proper, wider release in the following months. Sweet! Now, the last film I wanted to talk to you about is A24's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. This was the surprise film of the festival in London, and I'm so glad that it was an actually surprising pick because it didn't even premiere in Sundance back in January, so it did feel like an exclusive treat for London audiences. I mean, A24 in its little introduction, especially in the horror realm, you have Hereditary, Midsommar, The Lighthouse, The Witch, It Comes at Night, and so on. And while the film, in theory, uses the wrapper of horror to tell the story that it needs to tell, it's fully infused in comedy and what I call modern satire. The director, Helena Rain, even said at the film's Q&A that the intention of the film is to have a strong POV on contemporary issues of our times, such as our obsession with our phones, our over-tendency to perform, our faux passion towards political correctness, and what it all means in the context of the TikTok generation. The narrative is predominantly told through the perspective of B, played by Maria Bakalova, and her girlfriend, Sophie, played by Amadla Stenberg. At the beginning of the film, we see the two head to Sophie's friend's mansion, David, played by Pete Davidson, where a group of common friends of theirs have started parting prior to a hurricane hitting the area. I found myself empathizing with B early on being of a lower class and not of American blood, having trouble integrating herself with her girlfriend's friends when meeting them for the very first time. And I mean, who can blame her? I mean, the vibe between everyone is tense due to various factors that I'm not going to go into. And there are lots of things that go down between them. And all of that happens just before the very first murder takes place as their original game of bodies, bodies, bodies goes wrong. If Mean Girls were 20-something Gen Zers, they would be this friend group. All the girls are self-indulgent, upper-class, rich kid snobs from popping pills and doing coke to being obnoxiously self-absorbed. While most of them are insufferable people in their own right, the actors, to their credit, do an incredible job making them so, so funny to watch. 
The director also does a great job immersing you into this murder mystery in a single set location. The use of darkness, along with some neon light from the glow sticks one of the girls wears, only adds to the overall visual aesthetic of the film. And yeah, I also love how some long takes with handheld cameras were executed in a way that put you on the same wavelength of anxiety as the girls. Overall, there's not much I didn't like, and even if there was, I had such a good time that my experience overpowered anything negative. It's a great, funny, and most importantly, self-aware murder mystery that doesn't take itself too seriously. This is A24, so expect it near you in the following months. Whew, yeah, made it. Um, these are the recommendations that I got for you from Sundance London. A good mix of horror, documentaries, and comedy. I hope this has been helpful and has just made your 2022 watch this a bit more interesting. Thank you for listening. Oh, look, a message from our sponsor. Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it. I, I had no idea you could milk a cat. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.